Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, Bowfinger films the best worst movie about movies. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I'm Thomas Mariani, and this is awesome. It's just, it's so awesome. And I am Adam Thomas, and you can piss on hospitality. I will allow it. Oh, good. I'm glad that you're allowing it. Yeah, I appreciate that. Fuck people who do nice things for you. <laughs> That's what this whole show is about, really. Yeah, 100%. God forbid you're Christian Alvarez or Rave Tell. Sure, any of those. Right, yeah, that's your whole MO. Yes. Uh, but we are not the only ones here, Adam. We have a guest with us today, a first-time guest on the show. Uh, he is a writer, and he also podcasts in his own right. Uh, he's Mr. Chris Lucentonio. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. It really isn't an honor. Do not put this on your resume. Yeah, I, no, 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 don't, don't. L- listen, allowing me to guess is such a great hospitality. I'm not going to piss all over this podcast and be a bad guest. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, like the, the scheme of podcasts, if if they were jobs, we'd be like the Walmart greeter. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we're pretty low on the totem pole with that. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> but and somehow better paid. Yeah, <laughs> uh, true. We have better benefits here. <laughs> the elderly, convicts, it doesn't matter. Anybody can do it. Uh, but Chris, welcome. Uh, we invited you on, and like with most guests, we gave you a list of the upcoming topics, and you squared in on this week's topic, which is movies about movies. Uh, what would attract you to this one in particular? This topic specifically speaks to me because I will never be a filmmaker. I tried it once in college and it was an embarrassment. Uh, And now I have come to discover that any film that points the camera back on the whole producer's production side and really stresses how mind-numbingly difficult it is to make a good film, I am instantly respectful of. And it's just like my fascination with biopics, where a lot of what I appreciate about this subgenre, if you want to call it that, I don't fully understand. I just like watching a team of ragtag filmmakers pour their hearts into their little movie. Yeah, I mean, this is a topic we've circled around for a while and we always sort of had in our back pocket. I agree. I, I love the idea of watching like sort of that, that ragtag group of misfits thing. Um, with, you know, just people kind of like coming together, producing a show, even if they're not like the most talented or whatever. It takes so much to get a movie made and then to see it like dramatized. It can always be either comedically interesting or kind of tragic. There's so many avenues you can go down that road with. Um, but but Adam, are you, uh, you always were a bit resistant to this, at least for a bit, until we kind of let your guard down a bit to do movies about movies as a topic. Uh, but are you a fan of this sort of subgenre? I mean, I don't even like movies, period. So, I mean, I don't right. know why the hell I'm leaving on this show. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I it's hit and miss for me. It's very tricky, at least in 
what I've seen, it's a fine line to not come across pretentious to me. Like I'm all for Hollywood and movies, obviously clearly with this podcast and everything else. But when it's painted, you know, as this like just tinsel town of dreams, and we all know Hollywood is, has just such a seedy side to it too, that I think you have to show both sides, at least try to. And when it's just so dolled up and oh what a dreamland it just it, it always bothers me well i get that because i think that's what makes it such an interesting topic for the show because i do agree that as much as i do love a good like kind of like ragtag group of misfits making a movie at the same time there is also the danger of like the movies that often win oscars especially over the course of the last several years like best picture winners that are just like oh my god isn't hollywood great in the world of cinema isn't it beautiful aren't we doing something great for the world or whatever like it can often feel very much like people are up their own ass, quite frankly. I should clarify, I don't claim those ones. I well, I like when they show how the sausage is made. So show how the sausage is made. Don't just cut from the machine to the sausage in its perfect packaging. Right, that's true. Yeah, don't don't pull, um, say, like an artist necessarily. We're just romanticizing the idea of like what a f- true great film can be and what the magic of the movies is. Uh, just like basically make up. A- Shocked how that missed the bad pick for this week. Uh, no, uh, we're, we're doing something a bit different. It'll be interesting to talk about that, as we might as well go into our two features that we picked at the end of our last episode. That's our usual gimmick, is that uh, Adam and I pick a good and a bad movie to discuss uh, for the next episode. Though, we do have our patrons, patreon.com slash gedbpod, uh, where for a dollar you get to sometimes vote for movies we cover, which is the case for uh, Adam had two bad picks, and we ended up with uh, one that the patrons voted on, which was Bowfinger. Uh, which we'll talk about first, and then my good pick, which you picked at the end of our last episode, uh, which is Best Worst Movie. But first, let's go into Bowfinger. Come on, get my door just as fast as you get Tom Hanks. Kit Ramsey is the biggest star in Hollywood. Yeah, it's bad. I'm a little good in it. Bobby Bowfinger is a small-time producer. We worked together on that thing, you know, a couple of years ago. What thing? That, uh, the, uh, the famous movie. Bobby needs Kit. You bring me this script and Kit Ramsey, and you got yourself a go picture. A go picture! A go picture! Kit doesn't need Bobby. Now get off the property. How are you going to make the movie with Kit Ramsey? He said no. You don't think I thought about that? You don't think I worked that out? But when you can't get Hollywood's biggest star... He's vanished. Gone. There must be a lot of guys who look like Kit. Well, round up some lookalikes. You have to improvise. Would you be willing to show your naked rear end in a movie? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Steve Martin. You are going to run from over there to over here. I get it. Eddie Murphy. Uh, Action! Hilly gun! Hilly gun! And Heather Graham. This is one of the hot scenes. Because in this scene, Daisy's going to take off her blouse. Awesome. So Bowfinger uh, came out August 13th, 1999 uh, from director Frank Oz uh, of the Muppets fame uh, in his own right. And also uh, it stars and is written by Steve Martin, uh, who plays the titular Bowfinger, who's like this schlocky movie producer who's really out in his luck, uh, can't really get a movie made, uh, and attempts to make one with his own ragtag group of misfits and also the unwitting uh, participation of a big action star who's played by Eddie Murphy. Uh, and, uh, this is one of those ones that came out, like, in the late 90s, and I remember, like, for a while being, like, a great example of, like, a movie that didn't do well in theaters, but gained kind of a cult appreciation as time went on. But, Adam, you picked it as a bad pick, so I'm curious, uh, why are you not a big fan of Bowfinger? Ah! Uh, I don't know, man. 
<laughs> I do think Eddie Murphy's great in the movie uh, as, as both roles, whether he use his nerd brother or, you know, Kit. I, I think he's absolutely steals the movie. But I just find the rest of it never works for me. I don't think it's funny, particularly. I hate the ending stinger. I don't think there's a lot of chemistry to be had in this movie with, with anybody. I mean, Steve Martin, I like Steve Martin. I've always liked Steve Martin. But you could tell already at this point, it felt like Steve Martin was just like, doing these so he can play his banjo more he doesn't fit the role and he wrote the movie to me if he just doesn't work in this i don't like most of the supporting cast in this i think out of all of them christine bransky is my favorite just because you know she takes it like i'm such an actor in the theater and she's just lousy like that i always like that dynamic i think that's funny but the rest of it i just is dumb you know the, the all the terrence stamp stuff where it's basically making fun of Scientology. I mean, I don't think that's basically... What, what, wait, wait. Is that a satire about Scientology? Is that what that I'm pretty about? sure, dude. I'm pretty sure. No, no. I way. don't know. I have to do more research. That's insane. But, I, can't, I don't believe yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I got... Well, I bought a copy of Dianetics just to, so I could check. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it just... It never really worked for me, man. And it, we've talked about this before. If, if I'm watching a comedy that I'm not getting laughs out of, it's torture, man. And this one just... I barely laughs like i said eddie murphy makes me laugh at it a lot but other than that it just falls flat for me well i'm curious chris do you have much history with this movie had you seen it before uh not at all actually uh this was uh the eddie murphy vehicle that i can just completely skipped over uh, for reasons unknown uh, at the time uh and it seemed like uh, as time has grown, it's become more and more revered. So that's why I was like so curious why it was selected as the bad uh, side of this double bill. And when I watched it, uh, completely agreeing uh, with what's been said, uh, Murphy is not the problem here. Uh, he like takes to this uh, dual uh, role so well. The contrast between the uh, nerdy Jeff Jeffinson and the self-assured but mentally unstable Kit Ramsey, it's wonderful work. I think the issue is uh, the Steve Martin factor, both in his performance on screen, as well as his writing, because so much of what I think is a great concept in Bowfinger stops short of really going all the way. So the whole idea of a guerrilla filmmaking like Endeavor, I guess, to secretly film the biggest actor in the world and progressively gaslight him and completely destroy his mind is a great idea if it was more mean i i just feel like the problem with this one is the issue that uh you you've had with these films about filmmaking is that it's still caught up in this doughy-eyed look at the hollywood machine and that even with all of these crazy waves that this movie goes through to make this really weird uh production it still all turns out well and that stinger i completely agree is awful and way to send your audience home pissed off i don't really hate bowfinger i just wish i could see the the better version of this idea i remember i'd watched it a couple years ago because it was also an Murphy vehicle i'd skipped i think this was kind of like in that era where it was post nutty professor so he was still making movies that were successful but at the same time this isn't too far removed from like metro and life like you know other movies that just were completely lost to 
time, basically, after they came out, you know, the, the mid to late 90s. And so uh, I seen Bowfinger, and I remember kind of liking it the last time I saw it. But I will say with this rewatch, I think I guess I'm going to be the lone man out where I do like Bowfinger quite a bit. I don't love it. I think I agree with your central problem, Chris, about it does, I wish it was a bit meaner. I think it's mostly quite mean. It's just a problem of there are these interjections of trying to, like, get that sort of, like, doe-eyed, like, oh, we're, like, a weird family that's come together to make this movie elements to it that I feel are, like, a, a bit disingenuous. But I think for especially, like, the first two-thirds of it, it is, like, pretty decently, like, mean about, like, what these characters are willing to do and sort of the scummy aspects of, like, Steve Martin's character, I would say. Um, because I think it, it does a pretty good job of giving you the desperation on his face, just like, oh, God, I need to make a movie somehow or else I'm going to, like, lose everything. My, I, but I'm going to go ahead and just make this elaborate conceit that isn't going to really work. Um, but he ends up just kind of, like, going along with it as best he can. And then I think after, I would say, probably the, the big sort of, like, breakdown of the uh, Kit characters, where it starts losing a bit of that steam that I think it has for the solid two-thirds of it. Um, but at the same time, I, I think there's a, a solid, consistent amount of laughs that aren't just Murphy. I would say Martin has a lot of funny bits. Uh, Heather Graham, I think, has a lot of funny bits. Even smaller parts from, like, I think this is one of the funnier Jamie Kennedy performances. Not saying a lot, obviously, given what he's done, especially <laughs> after this. Uh, but, you know, even Robert Downey Jr. popping up here. I think it's a pretty fun satire when I agree. The more it leans on the meanness, the more I think it's fun. But... It does, I think, there's, it almost feels like studio interjection with some particularly, like, near the end with, like, the big film premiere and everybody looking at the chubby rain in wonder. It's just like, guys, that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't what this was. No, 100%. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I could, yeah, I completely agree with that. That's probably one of the parts that really gets me, too. And it's like, you guys knew you were making a shitty, like, low-budget, no-budget movie, and... The fact that you got you've got it made and everything, yeah, that's great. But like you said, it has this huge opening, and everybody's there, and oh my god, it's so exciting. Even Robert Downey Jr. is there. It's just, it's fucking dumb, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and then you know, oh, we're going to Thailand to shoot a movie, and why is Bobby Bowfinger in the movie? Like, if they would have like, like honestly, that stinger would have been kind of funny if it was just the nerdy Eddie Murphy fighting the way he was like where he's not really hitting anybody. He's constantly like guarding and protecting himself. But then when Steve Martin shows up on screen, you're like, why, why he should be directing it and not starring in it. I know that sounds like a really weird gripe to have, but I just think it's just, it's too much like rap and grannies sort of thing for me where it's just, it's not funny. It doesn't work. I don't know if I'd go as far as rapping grannies. I think that's a, that's a bit too huge of a slight. <laughs> that's a real low blow to have rapping granny comparisons. Well, skateboard Grammy. Okay, maybe. Yeah. I, I can what buy it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a fucking break. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, I've never liked that type of joke. And here, it, it just feels like such a stupid way to end an already, obviously, admittedly silly movie. But it just, I don't know. I, I just hate, it leaves an awful taste in my mouth. And that's probably why I didn't like it to begin with. Uh, I mean, obviously, if you have such a huge problem with the way a movie wraps up, then it's going to sort of taint the whole movie. And that's probably where the, my uh, sort of genesis of really not being a fan of this comes from. But I just, I, I agree. And I never really thought of it like the way you guys have talked about it, but if there is just a little bit meaner in approach, um, like if they really laid into fucking with him because of his like sort of psychosis and stuff or, or like even breaking and entering and filming him while he's sleeping or something like that, which obviously 
would not condone in real life, but uh, I think that it would it would work if it was more on the sort of dark comedy side than just sort of this whimsy, silly nature to the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, even like the dumbness, you mentioned the dumbness, I think the movie would also probably be better embraced if like it had more of like that kind of dumb sensibility uh, to like even the logic that's going on here. Because obviously, like from moment one where you hear this plan about like, oh, Kit doesn't have to like know he's in the movie. It's like, well, there's like a bunch of legal loopholes that would like make sure you wouldn't be able to do this necessarily. Uh, but the movie doesn't acknowledge that for so long. And I think is the better for it. That's just like, sure, we're going to go on this dumb premise that like we're going to be able to get away with shooting him in these weird covert ways. But then the movie has to like mention that later. Like Seaborn has a really bad throwaway line about like, uh, you know, I someone said we had to ask him his permission. Why didn't anybody tell me that before? It's like, guys, you're, <laughs> don't don't break down the facade like that. <laughs> it works so much better if you just go with it. And I think the movie mostly does that. Like, particularly whenever there's stuff like Heather Graham outside his fucking gate, and then she, like, quickly goes inside the gate and then comes back out. She's like, kid, you forgot your briefcase. <laughs> and she's, like, running around hysterically and shit like that. I think a lot of those sequences have a lot of fun. You wouldn't necessarily agree, though, Chris, with that? Uh, not really. Um, I, I, again, it's all in the premise, I think, is fantastic. But so much of the setup just falls short. Uh, and even the stuff surrounding the premise, I, I feel like there's a lot that the film could have said or like uh, followed through with that it just doesn't. Uh, we mentioned the Minehead stuff, which is a Scientology riff that stops short because we don't want to get sued. Or the, uh, the whole kind of uh, nuance of kit ramsey's character and how he's like this running commentary on the state of like black actors in hollywood but again we don't really want to lay too much of a finger on that so it, like it's kind of a constant like cop out of really going for it or and really trying to say something and again it's a it is a silly comedy that is really aware of it's like the absurdity of its own premise sure but you are like just knocking on the door of saying something with some real real impact and just not doing it instead like covertly filming the actor and filming the dog in high heels in a empty parking lot great bit i wish it went somewhere yeah and i hate the sort of the resolution of how they get him to agree to be in the film. Oh yeah, I, I used to I followed him around without anybody knowing just to get some quick pick me up shots. What <laughs> Let's get the fuck out of here. Well, we, the, yeah. I, I don't to be fair, I kinda like the idea that that's built into like this weird subplot that I kinda wish was even more of a thing where they start off this whole thing with like, oh, we needed a crew, and they have an admittingly kind of like awkward joke of like, oh, they get a bunch of like uh Mexican immigrants who are coming over the border. But then I like the sort of background gag of the immigrants are actually becoming better filmmakers than them. I, I kind of like that, like, little brief subplot that's building up there like, to start talking about Coppola and stuff. And by the end of it, like, oh, we're actually picking up coverage that you didn't even fucking think to do. <laughs> you fucking dumbass. We might actually need some stuff to edit with. Yeah, that's my favorite joke is when he's, like, mentioning the exposure of the shot that he was filming. <laughs> yeah, it's like, right. oh. And, like, Bowfinger's like, huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think that's couched in a funny gag. But I agree that I think having the blackmail element feels like too neat of a way to tie it up necessarily there's a lot of like sort of neat tying up that feels more akin to like a regular studio comedy than i agree like the more subversive movie this could have been in better hands yeah if we would have gone with my you know what i was originally thinking for the bad choice uh the vin diesel and uh, nicole kidman theater commercials 
but that's pure art. That would be that a total is, good pick. The, the, the Nicole Kidman one, especially. That is poetic cinema. It, it really is. Don't Heartbreak move. feels good in a place like this, Zach. <laughs> and then Chubby Rain comes on. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course. Which I do love, like, the brief glimpses we do get of Chubby Rain is, like, this weird kind of, like, almost Plan 9 from Outer Space story that we vaguely hear bits and pieces of. And I like uh, Adam Alexi Mala is the guy who plays Ephraim, the screenwriter. And I like, like, when he's initially pitching it, just like, oh, you know, uh, they're chubby, like, raindrops. And it's like, of course, yes, it's perfect, beautiful. <laughs> like, Steve Martin's so dedicated to the script. It's the kind of, like, that's what I love about Martin as, like, a comedic performer, really, is that he's able to really embrace this, even though it's clearly out of desperation. But at the same time, you totally believe that he's like, yes, this is a good script, even though it's his last possible option. <laughs> yeah, I like that character, too, the writer character. Uh, he's actually got my one of my favorite bits. When, you know, obviously Steve Martin's just down, you know, just all the upset stuff. And he comes in, he's like, Poss, what about this? And does that horrible, horrible fucking practical effect. And he fully commits to it. Mm-hmm. Like That part is great. I do later like when, like, his arm falls off and shit. Like <laughs> yeah, 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 that he burpees, just losing his shit. Like, that part's good. I will admit, that part makes me laugh. And I, and I love that there is this kind of, like, running joke where uh, it's not even, like, uh, spoken about where... Uh, this script and this film are clearly bad, and it reflects poorly on Bowfinger, who is a failed producer in his and director in his own right. It's like, yeah, of course he would think this is the hit that would finally turn it all around for him. Yeah, right. Clearly, it's just schlock. Yes. Like, I mean, it's so obvious. But yeah, I love that's that's true too. I do like that bit of it too, where they're just like, oh, this is going to be a masterpiece, and oh, we can get this made for sure. God, you're an excellent writer. The guy quits his fucking job. You know, I got eight brothers and sisters, and blah blah blah. And then I love that that bit comes back later. You know, and and he wants to sue Bowfinger and all this shit. Like, they, there's some really there is some fun bits in here, um, but I just don't know that there's enough funny bits in here. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it is kind of a problem with, especially when you want to have that like kind of later bit of like, oh, we became like a family. When I think the the writer character has a bit of a character, and I agree, Christine Bransky always fun as a presence. Uh, but I think there's stuff like I wish there was a bit more for say like Heather Graham to do. Like they they have the whole thing like, oh, she's sleeping with everybody in the crew, which is kind of like a weird storyline for most of it. But I do like like say her resolution to that, where she's like, yeah, so uh, we doesn't know that he's in the movie. I get where this is. I'm trying to work here and I'm trying to like make my way up in Hollywood. And by the end of it, she's the only one who really succeeds because she's with Kit at this at that point by the end of the movie and everyone else is down at the fucking front of the theater and shit like that. I like that they kind of have that, oh, this is a, an issue like this kind of awkward storyline that turns into like a big win for her ultimately. Just like, yeah, I, I slept my way to the top or whatever. But at the same time, I manipulate all these dumb men who don't know that I'm able to get up to this higher station. Yeah, it's a nicer version of the... Uh... A uh, small town girl coming to Hollywood to be an actress and having her dreams stamped uh, stamped all over and taken advantage of when it's like she knows the game from the onset and it's like yeah so what I'm going to sleep my way to the top I don't care what anyone thinks about it that's just how you climb the ladder right like that's a that's a great idea to use but again as you said. Heather Graham is great. Wish he had more to do. Right, right. But I, mean, I guess we should get to at least the thing that we all agree upon here, which we mentioned Eddie Murphy as not just Kit Ramsey, who's like fun as like kind of like a big star presence, but the GIF character who they get in <laughs> as a double. 
what I love about that character is because, like, obviously this is at a time, like I said, post Night Professor coming to America. He'd done the, like, I'm playing multiple roles thing several times. But this is one of the more interesting ones because Kit's maybe closer to some of the characters he's played, but he has never played anybody quite like Jif before mm. or since. Jif is such, such a weird, interesting, nerdy, awkward character that is so unlike the big, boisterous personality that Eddie Murphy loves to be. Every bit with him is the best bit in the movie as the Jeff character. You know, just, you know, are you familiar with films? Oh, yeah, yeah. An avid renter at Blockbuster. (laughs) (laughs) The whole audition scene is just magic. Yeah. Would you show your rear end camera? I guess. (laughs) It's so good. Yeah, dude. All he wants to do is run errands. Because he knows, like, if he runs the errands, that I got the napkins for everybody, and I did this, and I did that. And just the whole bit where Steve Martin sends him out, you know, I need you to do this, and also find out where your brother is, where he's going, and they go sharpen pencils. Yeah, sharpen pencils. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fucking I mean, good. Especially after the freeway bit, which is probably the best example of yes. them doing the, the guerrilla filmmaking. of him just going <laughs> against the, oh, stunt drivers, they were, they were really good. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that's when he has the breakdown, but like, I want to run errands. I want to go to Starbucks. <laughs> It's a good coffee, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's great. It's fucking great. And then just the casual reveal of, well, yeah, of course you. He is my brother. <laughs> That's just how dumbfounded they all are. But the thing is, too, his character, while being the funniest, also has the most heart of any of the characters in the movie. I mean, just that whole how happy he is to be there, and the whole speech when they're at the diner, and he says, "God, I really love you guys." You know, my brother, yeah, he gets to do all this, and but look at these people I get to sit here and eat with, and all that. Like, he's just such a sweet character through and through, and it just like you know, <laughs> guess what? Intercourse with in the band, like <laughs> it's so fucking great, dude. It's just honestly one of my favorite Eddie Murphy performances. Uh, like you said, it's unlike anything he's ever played we've all seen eddie murphy with the you know the sort of white makeup playing the jewish character or like the italian guy we've seen all that we've seen the big boisterous preacher type characters 100 percent. but yeah never before or really since has he played a character quite like this unless you count fucking norbit but even that yeah i was gonna say norbit like the the titular norbit is like the worst case scenario version of this character. right exactly but yeah this is just such a fun really kind of sweet wild weird performance from eddie murphy and it's made all the better by that uh, contrast to the kit ramsey performance which is essentially eddie murphy's ego run wild Mm -hmm. and it's a it's a it's a commentary on himself really uh because there is no bowfinger the movie without uh, eddie murphy playing the kit ramsey character and to have like these two levels he's working at here one that he's never really gone to and one where he's really being exposed is so fascinating to even to do it at this stage in his career at like 1999 when he was on the top of the world and just about to hit a downslope with his career that he could like pull this out at the time and remind everyone that he is this great actor who has these layers to him when people use him well great the clumps is like in a couple years so we we won't see that for a while no, yeah, that's true. Uh, the Night Professor 2, The Clumps, is literally the next year. So it is just, that's it's about to be a huge dip in like, family films or a territory in particular. But yeah, I think that also works with, like you mentioned, the heart of it, Adam. Like, that's results in one of the few, like, heartfelt moments, I believe, out of, like, Steve Martin, where he's just like, did you see him in there doing that speech he thinks that, like, we're family or whatever? I couldn't be an asshole to that guy. 
he's so nice. What could we do? <laughs> like, that's one of the few bits because it feels like it's almost like it's him getting guilted into the idea of like, no, I can't fuck around with this. Like, he's an innocent. <laughs> I can't do that to him. <laughs> and I think yeah, I agree that like, he works as sort of like the one believable heart of the movie because of just his complete lack of of any kind of um, you know, understanding about what's going on or his literal fascination with what any time, like when they have the scene where uh, Heather Graham has to take off her blouse for it and he just looks around like, oh, I, I can't believe it's so awesome. Like he's not even, he's being, not being filthy. He's just being like genuinely amazed that this is happening to him. He compliments her. Yeah, you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fucking fantastic. You're going to be a star. Yeah, you're going to be a star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fucking Jif. Jif makes this movie work. And of course, yeah, juxtaposed against Kid as well. But yeah, Jif is just, it's so fucking funny. Yeah, I mean, shout out to like with the Kit character, like the best stuff with him is really like you mentioned, like him reacting off of the random people that come up. Like when Christine Branson comes up talking about alien love, he's like, what do you mean alien love? What is this about? What does this even mean? <laughs> like his reactions off of it. I think it's like, I, while I do think like, I like this movie a bit better than you guys at the same time, without like either of those Eddie Murphy performances, it would slope a lot lower down in my estimation. Because he's just like, it's it's so such a bummer when like you see like around this time how many bad Eddie Murphy performances there are and you see stuff like this just like you know that that guy has so much talent and like that he can really burst out with and it only is like in situations like this or later a movie that we love Adam it's kind of fits the scenario of like my name is Dolomite and stuff like that like when he really is on it's magical to see Mm -hmm. we do have a whole nother movie to talk about so why don't we go into our uh, final thoughts overall here Chris final thoughts on Bowfinger I honestly wish I could have saw it earlier in my life and have it appreciate over time like so many other people did. Again, I like a lot of elements of this film, the uh, the central Eddie Murphy performance, uh, uh, the, the concept itself, and a lot of the gags I think do work. I just wish uh, when it got into the commentary side where it's really trying to uh, say something in terms of Hollywood where it's it's just like leaving out these little uh, footnotes of of what it could have done and just not committing to the bit far enough. So I can say that I didn't like fully hate it. I'm just a bit disappointed that it didn't go far enough. Adam, your final thoughts on Bowfinger? <sighs> Fucking sucks, G. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess I can't go that far either. I, I'm not a fan of it. Um, I, I get why maybe people like it. I, I mean... You know, people like what they like. It's just, it's never worked for me. It still doesn't work for me. I don't think it ever will. Uh, the Eddie Murphy stuff is the highlight of the movie for sure. And uh, yeah, it's just, uh, if you want to see a really good Eddie Murphy performance, there you go. Then uh, enjoy the rest of the drywall surrounding it. Oh, I would say it's decently colorful wallpaper uh, to me. But I do agree that I think it's not the strongest turn from like, for like Martin, both is either like him starring in or writing a movie. And I, I think there's, like, some things we could really beef up uh, that would be make it a bit more, like, consistent, I guess. But at the same time, I have enough fun with this movie to where I would say it's not, like, top tier of, like, this kind of, like, movies about movies uh, kind of movie. And I do wish it was a bit meaner. The best moments are when it's a bit, like, more in the mean and bizarre and kind of silliness of it. As opposed to, like, the weird sentimentality that creeps in on occasion with it. But overall, I would still say it's, like, pretty fun. Especially, it's one of the more, I guess, mainstream attempts at one of these movies I think most people can get on board with. 
because uh, it's like got the fun high concept and it's got a pretty solid cast of people who are doing you know pretty decent job with what they're doing or really great in the case of like Eddie Murphy but I do wish that it was a bit more sort of like forceful in what it's doing with uh, the sort of satire of Hollywood if it was closer to that I think it would be a better movie than it is but uh, speaking of best or worst uh, let's go ahead and talk about our good feature best worst movie Are we going to do two feelings today? I think we are, aren't we? We don't speak too much about it. Is that really my son? It was so not him. It was just crazy because nobody in the community even knew that George was in a film. I was in a movie called Troll 2, and it's become known as the worst film of all time. Really? Yes. Well, I left in about the middle of the movie. It was so bad. I had no idea what it all meant or what I was doing or what I was saying. By every conceivable measure, this is a bad film. Oh my gosh, that's the worst movie I've ever seen. There's this movie you've got to see. I've watched it a million times. Oh, oh my God, you didn't see it? You haven't seen Troll 2? We're watching it now. And that's what people do with this movie. They pass the DVD around like it's Bible. I really wanted to be an actor from, from the start. Oh, boy. I think George was born an actor. Dentistry is just a stage he's on. I was in a film. I was in a film called Troll 2. Okay. So Best Worst Movie uh, came out November 16th, 2010. And we should mention, Adam, right up front, this is the first documentary we've ever covered on the show which is kind of weird considering how long we've been going, but we've kind of talked off mic. It's a bit rough to kind of like cover a documentary. We always want to do like a documentary episode, but it's always been rough to kind of how to approach, especially judging a documentary good versus bad to us. Yeah, it's hard to, you know, because it all depends on if you're into the source material to begin with for the most part, whether or not you're going to really value the documentary. Documentaries are so personal to me. Like, I'll watch a, you know, a true crime documentary that I really like it that I know Thomas would never even watch because he's not really into that stuff and vice versa. So it, it is a little difficult. Yeah, I don't know. Chris, how do you feel about it, especially because obviously you, you write about film, you've talked about film. Do you think it's a bit harder to talk about a documentary compared to like a narrative feature in general? Oh, absolutely. Uh, a lot of the time, uh, if if you're not really like vibing with the film in question, you want to fault it for something, but then you realize like, well, no, it's informative. It's exactly what it like needs to be. It's telling you either about the subject matter or like doing exactly what it says on the tin, but it's just not kind of working. It's so much harder like uh, to poke holes into like the, the idea of a bad documentary than like a good one. Like what exactly is a bad documentary? <laughs> Hail to the Deadites is a bad documentary. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. That, that's an example, but that kind of fits in the spectrum of this movie, because that's a movie about, like, the Evil Dead fandom. And in this case, this is a movie about a sort of fandom for another cult movie, but much lower on the totem pole than Evil Dead. Because uh, Best Worst Movie, if you're unaware, is a documentary about the uh, infamous bad movie that has a huge cult around it, Troll 2. And I guess we should even, before we go into Best Worst Movie, talk a bit about Troll 2, which, if you're unaware, is a very odd uh, sort of horror fantasy movie that came out in 1990 that, despite its title, is not actually a sequel to the 1986 movie Troll and uh, was this movie that was made by um, an Italian director with a cast of mostly people who hadn't worked in movies in general. Um, and it kind of shows. It has a, like a, a big sort of cult following in the So Bad It's Good film community of sorts, which, Adam, we're big fans of that on this show. We love a So Bad It's Good kind of movie. Uh, would you say Troll 2 earns that kind of cult status? 
yes and no. Uh, Troll 2 doesn't work necessarily for me at all. Like, I, I never find myself like, oh, this is so fucking bad. It's great. It, to me, it's almost like a boring mess. But I get it. There is enough there, though, where I could see why people have latched onto it the, as much as they did. It just doesn't necessarily work for me. Yeah, I think Troll 2 has that kind of weird thing where, like, with some of the So Bad It's Good movies we've covered on the show before, like, say, Miami Connection, one of the first. Yeah, 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 Like, that's a movie especially I can rewatch and just find new bad things to, with it. Versus Troll 2, the first time you watch Troll 2, it's an amazing experience, especially if you know nothing going in about what the fuck Troll 2 is. I guess it would fit more, like, we talked about this with bad movies on the show, of, like, So Bad It's Good, just genuinely outright bad, or The Trainwreck Bad. I would argue it fits more in, like, sort of that train wreck bad element of it, where there are constant baffling choices being made. Not always, like, very funny choices, but incredibly fascinating choices you can't really believe a director would think to do, or a cast member would think to deliver in such a way. But I don't know. Do you have much of a history with Troll 2, Chris? Not really. Uh, I had never actually seen the whole film until... I want to say just a couple of years ago, I had mostly just absorbed it through osmosis and memes and shared clips on YouTube completely out of context and context doesn't really help anything. Nothing works or functions like a movie you would like what you think a movie would like it, it does stop short again of being a complete train wreck because you see what like you see the ideas that are going on and like what it could be. It's just done in such a bizarre and unsettling way uh, 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 that it's all just uh, makes it into this absurd comedy by default because of uh, me kind of watching it via like timeline clips and such and so forth. It didn't have the uh, impact that so many other people described like in this documentary that where it's like, it's a religious uh, experience for them watching troll too. And it's like, it's just kind of a bad movie to me. Yeah. I mean, I, from what I'd heard a lot of people, especially when sort of like, the initial kind of uncovering of Troll 2 was more about people discovering in video stores because it pretty much went straight to video and people just sort of rented off the auspice of its very misleading VHS cover and shit like that. So I can believe why without any kind of knowledge of like the, oh my God, or you can't piss on hospitality, won't allow that, or any of the things that have become memes like you're mentioning, I can see that like kind of like really sneaking up on people in a more fascinating way and like why that cult would have grown out of that kind of like, fascination discovery of the movie but uh that leads into i guess into best worst movie which is about all of the stuff with like troll 2 came out in 1990 and most of the people involved didn't do much afterward including uh michael stevenson who played the young kid who's part of like the main family group in that original movie and uh, he's the director here uh who discovered a lot of the kind of fascination on myspace which they mentioned a lot in this movie very firmly dated <laughs> in the early 2010s uh but he discovered there is a huge fan base for this movie of people who think it's like one of the best worst movies ever made basically but he, the main person we follow is george hardy who plays the dad in the original movie and uh is a dentist in alabama in like a small alabama town and i think the big strength of this movie is that George Hardy is such an interesting force of personality the moment you see him. You can see why people would immediately be gung-ho to like, oh my god, he's like the neighborhood dentist everybody loves, like in his small town. But at the same time, he had these dreams of becoming a bigger star, like going into Hollywood, but he's too bad an actor to make that work. But in, it's fascinating him discovering the sort of cult fan base and going to like fan screenings and conventions and finding there is a fascination with him and also discovering where the other people in this movie have been since that point uh which is why i picked it as a good pick 
And I personally still really enjoy this movie. I'm not as in love with it necessarily as I was when I first watched it, but I still like have such a weird appreciation for this movie that I think examines that kind of cult of so bad it's good cinema for better and worse, I would argue. It examines kind of like both sides of that coin. And I find it while kind of being clearly an amateur documentary, at the same time, there's a bit more of that kind of charm we talked about of like a bunch of people getting together and being in a movie, or in this case, re-examining the cult status of this supposedly failed movie they once experienced. Um, but I'm curious, Chris, uh, do you agree with that about Best Worst Movie? Oh, yeah. I, I think this is a, a really interesting film, uh, both, as you said, on the cult fandom and so bad it's a good movie culture, which I've never really ascribed to, but I have always been kind of fascinated by it. Uh, and at its core, it's this really sad and moving portrait of, of, of a failed actor who moved on with his life and now has to like, reassess his entire life path because of the success, like, decades after the fact of Troll 2 as like this cult object. Like he is a well-off person, well-beloved in his hometown, but nevertheless, he keeps chasing the the little uh, taste of the spotlight that the Troll 2 cult fandom is giving him to a fault because it leads to some really like sad and even tragic moments of like that's, that scene at the uh, horror convention where nobody knows him like my heart breaks for him because he's just such a like a likable person but he's like barking up the wrong tree he has like a, a nice life and he can just move on but he can't because troll 2 is just such a cult phenomenon so yeah i, I like that uh stevenson reconnected with him and gave him this like this taste of the fame that if he were a better actor back in like uh, when the, the the filming of Troll 2 was going on, he maybe could have had and basked in. Uh, but Adam, what do you think of uh, Best Worst Movie? Yo, Tom Wopat's a piece of shit. Oh, <laughs> 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 you fucking lying ass motherfucker. <laughs> you, you don't know what Troll 2 is. So shine him on, you fuck. Um, but no, I, I completely agree with what Chris said. I, I, I mean, George Hardy is just such instantly you you love him like even as a viewer of the documentary you're like this guy just the way he treats his employees how he's the way he treats his patients even his ex-wife loves him i mean it's just how he is with his parents i mean the guy's just the most likable guy and yeah you do get the idea that he's moved on you know he doesn't even really talk about it and then yeah he gets struck with this like reemergence of his of 15 minutes of fame and it's kind of exciting to go along with it at first because you're like oh my god look at him and like you know the upright sensor brigade or the helmet draft house and all these people just love this guy and love this movie and he's just enjoying it but then yeah once he's at that fucking horror convention in london oh god dude and nobody knows who the fuck he is nobody knows what the movie is and he's trying to tell him oh it's the best bad movie and you can tell nobody gives a fuck you know, Neil Marshall is giving him shit at some point <laughs> off camera. Like, you're like, this poor fucking guy. Like, you just feel bad for him, but at the same time, dude, he still gets to go home, man. He still gets to fucking live his life as, like, a local celebrity, you know, which is probably great for him. And, you know, if you look him up on sort of what he's done since he's popped up in shitty little horror movies here and there like i'm sure he's fine and you just love him what the saddest part to me is the fucking mom yeah margot prey the whole her back story stuff yeah whoa like you just you 
terrible for her. And, and it's like, and it's instant too when she starts crying about the scene where the kid's crying, you know, and you're like, oh no, like this <laughs> poor woman. Like you just, you just instantly, woof. And also, yo, that director needs to wake the fuck up, man. Like, <laughs> like bro take it easy man like yelling at them because you were a dog and you don't listen you don't know she's cutting them off in the middle of q and a's fuck you man yeah claudio fergasso which i just like his journey is so fascinating to me where he initially comes up like in italy they interview him and he's just like you know a troll too that is, is it's touching on these big it's things. a parable it's, it's a parable <laughs> right <laughs> and so he really believes he made a genuinely really good movie which oh, is something we lo- we we love talking about that on the show. Whenever we cover like a so bad Scooby movie where it's like a foreign director comes over to make the big American movie, that's what Claudio Fergasso like exemplifies in so many of these earlier scenes. And he, and he's so like gung ho about like I guess there's an appreciation for it. That's great. I would love to come to these screenings. And his dawning realization that just like oh everyone's here and they're excited. They're laughing they're at it. Laughing. At them. <laughs> <laughs> that is so Dude, delicious. I, it's great. The best bit ever with him. It's when it's like the two twin brothers standing outside the theater talking. <laughs> and he just like saunters up behind them. And what about your director? And they're like, oh shit, Claudio. Oh, Claudio, hi. Good to see you. God damn, dude. He just wants recognition from anybody and everybody. It's so good. He's such, you just can't stand him. And then his wife's bullshit, like, Oh, because all my friends were becoming vegan and it pissed me off. So I wrote this movie. <laughs> so there, she tells you what it's about right there. It's like anti-vegan. And then Claudio has this whole other idea. The composer has a whole other idea. The producer <laughs> thinks it's like one of the most important movies that has yet to be discovered. And we're like, who are they? What the fuck are we talking about here? Have you guys watched this fucking movie? And just recall, you know, the kid, oh, he was complaining because he was standing in the pot for too long. And all he did was complain that he wanted to get out and he had to use the bathroom and blah, blah. So he just put makeup over his mouth. You're like, good Lord, man. <laughs> like, you're torturing these kids. And, and, and another, and the other favorite bit is the, my, if my father caught you, he'd cut off your little nuts and eat them. He can't stand you. And when they brought it up to him and they're like, oh, this line doesn't work. Like, this is not what teenagers say. And he tells them, I know what American teenagers say. <laughs> like the fucking ego on this guy. And But yes, it is great that, you know, people, he's completely dumbfounded by the reaction that the movies is getting and everything and all that. But he's also like, it worked. Like he right. made this shitty movie that was a bomb at the time, but now people it's people love it. People love him because of this fucking terrible film he made. So in, in the grand scheme of things, he he won. He got what he wanted. Right. Yeah. It's a movie that really is struggling with like a lot of like that perspective of like what that means for people. Like with Claudio, despite the fact that they do paint him as like, oh, he's like a self-absorbed director. At the same time, you see so much of like he's hiding so many insecurities about that in himself or the person who, like, my heart breaks for is Don Packard, who in the original movie played this weird shopkeeper, who's my favorite part of Troll 2, which is like, that's the devil's drink or whatever, and he, like, spits <laughs> and stuff like that. Very funny in the movie. But then his whole backstory where you find out he's had, like, a series of, like, mental problems and he's been kind of, like, a shut-in for so long. He just lives with his cats, basically. And it's, like, such a sad portrait of him. But then he goes to the Upright Citizens Brigade event 
and he's out there and people are like clapping for him, even though they're clapping because they think he's like so terribly bad in the movie. But he describes it as just being like one of the best moments of his life where he could truly be himself. That's a beautiful moment where even if, you know, everybody's kind of like making fun of him a bit for him, it's just a big, beautiful moment that like actually got him like some sort of satisfaction in a life that was full of like disappointment and regret. That's beautiful to see. Yeah, it's a nice reminder that uh, this like so bad it's good uh, culture ar- around filmmaking where uh, we we can like completely uh, write that off as like receiving film in the wrong ways or uh, responding to them in like ironically detached meanness. But for like for those moments, like uh, the, these uh, uh, people who work on Troll 2, like they got something out of it in the end, despite the experience being terrible. Uh, this fandom for the movie, like even though we can question its uh, like sincerity, like they are nevertheless appreciative of people who like hopefully haven't thought about this movie they made for this uh, wild Italian man 20 years ago. Yeah, you get a real good mix of it because you get like some of that snotty element of it with like, say, a John Gemberling, who I think is like a funny comedian. But at the same time, the moment he pops up and he's doing his introduction, like few films get every single aspect of production wrong. Like that's sort of like the element you think so bad's good culture is. But then as the movie goes along, particularly that couple who's so adorable, who make like the Neil Bog goblin outfits and they're really genuinely like full of emotion when they get their thing like signed by some of these people. It's like so genuinely like heartwarming and it feels like they have a real investment in troll 2 beyond just like oh isn't this dumb and funny it's just like no it, it's a really like it's a movie that speaks to them even if it's in a oh this is a very funny entertaining movie maybe not in the way that the people intended it to be like mm-hmm. there's a great mix of that where like i said this movie examines that that culture for all it's good and bad in a way that i think the best documentaries do like gives you the warts and all approach yeah, like as much as we can rag on the quality of Troll 2, it ha- like as this film shows, it has undeniably changed people's lives for the better. Like, e- like even just uh, people coming together and engaging in the communal act of watching a movie and just like relishing in all of its poor qualities. Like they are nevertheless like creating moments together. And I, I love that you shouted out the, uh, the makeup couple. Like that movie technically brought them closer together than they've ever been before. And like, that's insane to think about like this, like shoddy, shoddily produced uh, VHS movie that has like dumped into your uh, rental stores for decades, somehow like, like radically alter people's lives. Like, that's insane to think about. Oh, and just like, you know, the people who work at the office, the real estate office or whatever it is, and they, they have their like, I think at the in the movie, it's their sixth or seventh annual a control to watching party and every year right. new people come and new friends and they all create the sense of community at their probably boring ass stuff shirt sure, job. I mean, just that's great, you know, and then the people who have the troll Olympics and all this stuff like it's just such silly fun and, and it's all based around this crazy fucking movie that is it's terrible like the the troll 2 is a terrible terrible film but if anything the best it's done is this sort of fan culture behind it which we all know some fan culture can be incredibly toxic the the people in this movie who love this movie just feel like they just want to show it to everybody they want everybody to know what it is it doesn't feel like they're you know sort of making sure it's just theirs and nobody else gets to experience it. They like, want everybody to experience it. And I think that's, if anything, that's like one of the sweetest moments of the movie too. 
And I think that's what So Bad's Good movie culture kind of has, because I think that's even been, like, a connecting thread with you and me, Adam, is, like, anytime we've talked about the movies that we think are, like, so bad they're good on this show, it's always been more of a mutual appreciation of just, like, these people came together and made this movie that has so many wrong ideas about how to make a movie. So many things that, like, no one would think to do because it's such an ill-advised idea. But yet it's compelling, and we want to just expose more people to this movie for the better. We want to have, like, I love that communal experience of watching, you know, a crazy wild movie that everybody can be on board with. It's just like, what the hell's happening next? This is so fun. This is so enjoyable. I think that's something that, like, because, like, with a So Bad's Good movie, if you have, like, a toxic person, they're just going to watch it once and, like, fart all over it, and then they're going to leave. I think it's harder to have, like, a toxicity about a So Bad It's Good movie compared to, like, if you, like, really appreciate and enjoy this movie and want more people, like, and, and want to expose it to more people, it's way more of, like, that inclusivity than rather the gatekeeping element of it. I think that's less of a factor with So Bad It's Good movies. Yeah, even through all of their, like, harsh words that they could throw at Troll too, it's all done in such a loving way, like, as, as weird as that is to say, because so much of them get something out of it that say like um, you're like YouTube film reviewer wouldn't uh, when it's just an easy mark or a low hanging fruit for them just to laugh at all the weird and uncomfortable bits where like this, like these people who have like responded to troll Two have responded in such grand and interesting ways. Like people are making their fan films or like video games about it and taking this film all around the world just to again, share it and share that kind of, feeling they get from it like and that's why like best worst movie like despite the title like it is the best worst movie because like it is a terrible film that nevertheless has done like so much good for the like image of film fandom right but at the same time i like that also it shows that it is a small audience with like not just even like the horror convention crowd or that one other like convention they go to in london but even i love all the scenes where george hardy tries to convince people in his small alabama town to watch the movie like that one lady who's just like oh my god it's the best sports movie ever made look at that poster isn't that great and everything anyway i'll go go over your plan for your dental uh, she has no interest no but she's very nice about it it's this movie i did 20 years ago okay yeah it's they say it's the worst movie ever uh-huh so you gotta come <laughs> i'll see if we can make it yeah <laughs> Okay, so I was going over your x-rays. <laughs> you know, everybody's basically campaigning, going door to door. Like, you're going to tell nobody gives a fuck. No, but it's just, yeah. it's giving him so much joy. No one's there to watch Troll 2. They're there to support George. And, just 100%. And that's a beautiful thing. Like, even though they, they can't see what even he didn't see in that film at the time, they just want to be there for this guy. And again even though it's tragic in that he doesn't get a wider audience or he's, he's able to like sustain that, that, that buzz he's getting from being a cult figure. He nevertheless like has that community around him. Quickly to even speak on, you know, how, what they say about George Hardy in the movie. I mean, the guy did pro bono dental work for kids who needed it, who couldn't yeah. afford it. I mean, just that type of shit. It's just, it's, he's just remarkable. His relationship with his daughter is so fucking funny. You know, how many, how many text messages do you think is send a day? Like a thousand? Yeah, maybe. You do not! <laughs> it's so fucking good. Or, or early on when he's talking to the one little kid who was just like, can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question? Yeah, he can't get the word out? Yeah, he can't get the word out. If, like, you... How, if, you, if you could... Okay, if you could change your... No, if you could... <laughs> <laughs> 
It's so good. Dude, he's got tubes in that one woman's mouth on his dental chair. And he's talking about the movie. And then he's about to proceed. He's like, oh, if you want to ask me any questions about it, raise your hand. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> You're putting a crown on. Relax. It's so fucking. But he's just such an enigmatic, sweet character. Man. Like, and he's basically, he is a character. I mean, let's be honest. George Hardy is a character. He's like Southern Craig T. Nelson. Like, it's just. <laughs> well, I think that's even what they call it. Like, uh, John Gibberling introduces him as just, like the rich man's uh, Craig T. Oh, he does. That's <laughs> <Yes>. right. That's <laughs> right. And it's so accurate. Um, but yeah, he's just such a sweet man and character to follow around. And then, like, the, who, the, the, the fucking grandpa. Oh, man. No, that, oh, man, that's so upsetting. <laughs> but this fucking TV, he's like, the TV he's watching is like the smallest, oldest TV I've ever seen. <laughs> but this guy, he's like, oh, I've been in, you know, hundreds of movies, never got married, never had kids. And you look, he does. He has like hundred, a hundred and some God credits, this guy. And he, he played quite possibly the strangest role in the whole movie where he's the dead grandpa's visage who like tells the kid how to like, if I remember it, like make Molotov cocktails or something like that. Like, right. And also someone mm-hmm. that tells him to piss on, on, on the dinner, yeah, piss on the sandwiches. <laughs> right. Right. And all that stuff. Yeah. But like that guy, man, I feel so bad for that dude. The moment he just says like very casually in a little, offhanded joke way of just like i guess i patered away my life and it's like, oh, i God. know i feel so oh. bad for this oh. guy. <laughs> oh man well just even margo too you know what would be the ideal situation if i could go somewhere where no one could ever find me like oh oh god and that's and that's just it's the stuff you never really think about when you are watching these movies and you sometimes we can be a bit you know sort of crass but like oh this person sure. this actor whatever whatever and then you like realize that like oh yeah what failure can do to people it just really can encompass them in a very sad tragic way where mm-hmm. it's just like you you actually see the people who are behind some of these like weird off-color decisions and you're like oh they they're a person who has like an entire life you're not aware of. And it's so, it, it's once again, it's, it peels back that layer of just like, Oh, that guy you were laughing at in that movie. I uh, guess what he has a really fucked up life and you can yeah. have fun with him in the movie, but at the same time, like just realizing that that is a person. Well, I think that's the separation, isn't it? I, I think that's, that's what responsible movie sort of watchers or critics or reviewers need to maybe do like, yeah, have fun with the character in the movie, have fun with the performance. Shit on the performance. Even if you want to shit all over the performance, it, it's fine. It's that movie. But when it becomes personal and people start shitting on the actual person themselves, then, you know, you're being irresponsible and basically a prick. Like, that's the thing. Like, yeah, we might make fun of characters in movies or something like that, but we're making fun of the character in the movie. Like, even in this movie, like, at the beginning, like, after we have the great introduction to George, they start bringing up Troll 2, and the people who have seen it at that time are just like, oh, he was fucking terrible in it. He's the worst actor ever. (laughs) (laughs) He was terrible in it. He was fucking terrible (laughs) it. It was a horrible performance. But he's the sweetest guy. Yeah. There, There is that disconnect there where it's, again, so easy to, like, poke fun at this film and, like, shit all over it but at the same time it like reveals this curtain behind it it's like there were in fact living breathing people in there if i got this correctly the shopkeeper said that he was on break from a mental asylum when he filmed his scenes yes yes 
holy shit. How are we, how was the movie not about him? Well, from what I understand, he was incredibly hard to even get to be in this documentary. I'm not shocked. Right. Yeah. Yeah, He, he's just such a recluse where he doesn't, you know, he's clearly got issues, you know? And uh, so that, I mean, but again, yeah, it would have been an incredibly fascinating story. Like you want to know that man's story. That's that, I guess that's really the beauty of this documentary. Like, yes, it's not exactly the, most well put together one especially out of like sort of if you look at the modern sort of horror documentaries that have come out about the movies or the fan base that are super polished and slick and all that this is not necessarily that no and I, but i think that's the strength of it is that it's not I like agree. these epk mm-hmm. kind of things where it's just like oh it's it's fluff yeah it's not never sleep again or crystal lake memories or anything like that that are just so brilliant and take you from top to bottom and all that this movie is just about the people who made the movie and that's where this movie is so successful to where everybody in the movie, even like the director who, like I said, a guy, this fucking guy, but he's, it's fascinating. You want to know more about them. Every single person who pops up in this movie, you want to know about them. You want to know their story. You want to know what they've been doing since, before, during. And it's just super successful of painting every person that was involved in this, you know, horrible, horrible film in just such a positive light and such a interesting fascinating light it, like it, it's really really successful and that's where the heart of it is it's in the people and it's just not even it's not even the movie that it's based on it it's literally just the people who are involved that really push this movie forward the, the the real key to me is the sequences where they go back to the locations like in salt lake city and they go back and they like recreate certain scenes from Troll 2. In any other documentary, that would be so masturbatory and just like, oh my god, you're so full of yourselves. But this feels like it's just like people reminiscing about like a weird vacation they had. Oh yeah. They're and they're having a fucking blast doing it. Right. That's even the stuff where Claudio feels like he's at his most like charming, where he's just like giving them direction to recreate. Yeah, yelling these at them but laughing at the same right. time. Yeah, it's. I completely agree. And, and even like the reactions of some of the other people, like I love Darren Irwig, who plays the guy who in Troll Two, he's the guy who says, "Oh my god," and whatever. Here, he's like one of the few like sort of straight men in the movie, just knowing like this was a piece of shit, but like I'm having fun with everybody. And his reaction, especially off George, just like, "Yeah, isn't it fun? We're at this convention." Like, yeah, it's great, George. <laughs> like, <laughs> like so people, some people are in on the joke in a really charming way, while others are completely not. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And even at the convention where George is like, oh, they, I feel sick. I I just want to get out of here. You want to get out of here? Let's get the hell out of here. Like, that guy's just <laughs> ready to go, too, man. They just do not want to be there. Uh, yeah, it, it's, I agree with you. Everybody, but like I said, everybody in it is fun. You like everybody. Like, even, like I said, even the director, as pompous as he seems, you still he's got just such a charm to him because it's like, is he delusional? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, what is going on with this guy? I need to know more. Like, are him and his wife still together? Like, I, I have, because they're barely in scenes together. Like, what is this? It's just, it, it's such a just well-told little story about this awful film that just will not go away. It's very clear that, like, the making of this film, Vesper's movie, was therapeutic to all involved. Like, they finally got to deal not only the uh, their experiences making the film, but having it thrust back into their lives decades after the fact. And being able to do it with the people that they originally made the film with does a lot. Because they have more chemistry together in this film than they did in the original Troll 2. Like, <laughs> I f- they feel more like a family here than when they actually played family members. 
yeah, I'd say that's very accurate. Uh, you know, even the, the one scene with the director and George Hardy in the car before they go to Margot's house, he was like, well, I mean, George, what's the worst going to happen? She shoots us through the door. <laughs> He's like, oh, my God, George. He's like, what? She might. She might have a gun in there. <laughs> you know, she might kill us both. Like, that's just a, it's a great little bit. Right. And yeah, Thomas, like you said, when they're recreating those scenes, and he's got this grown man director now over his shoulder. He puts it out. He's like, what are you going to do to me, daddy? And he's yelling at him. Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but it is really oddly sweet at the same time. Like, I like the fact that even with Hardy, they do show occasional moments where he does get a bit, of, a bit too full of himself. Like, where he's talking about going to the convention at the airport. And he's like, you know, I really want to go, but I just don't want Claudio to be there because... Clyde's got to suck up all the attention. I want some attention. Like, he's very kind of selfish in that moment. Like, it's a document that really shows kind of the words and all, even of, like, a Hardy who we love so much. There's still a few moments where he's kind of, like, self-absorbed and kind of shitty, but he still is endearing because he's very human because of all these things. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, at the horror convention, the way he's talking about the people and and everything that's there, like, he's disgusted by everything and everybody smells and everything's dirty. I can't believe everybody's so obsessed with this thing that they did 30, 40 years ago. Why, why are they, don't they have better things to do? Don't I have better things to do? <laughs> oh, look at this. Oh, this, oh, this is going to make me sick. I don't know why anybody These people likes are this. weird. <laughs> I, I, I love in that moment, he falls back into the dentist that he is. And he's like, you will not believe how much Ginger Vadis I've found on these people. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like, I can't be the cult actor right now. I've got to be who I am, which is a dentist. Really? Tons. Oh, tons. <laughs> I completely agree. It just shows him, you know, like I said, as charming, as sweet as he is, and as much as everybody likes him, he can be a little prickish sometimes, and that's fine. He's a, he's just a person. He's a dude. It probably has gone down a little bit in my, what I would rate it since I first saw it. Like this, when I first saw this, this was a five out of five out of the gate. I absolutely loved it. But uh, there's still something about it. Every time I see it, and I've watched it probably once every year, maybe two years. I just, I absolutely love this movie. And I always, always smile a lot during the movie. And I'm not necessarily someone who does that, but I always feel myself, catch myself like really smiling and enjoying just the time. Well, let's sound like pretty good final thoughts, Adam, because we had talked about this movie quite a while. So let's uh, go well, ahead and... Uh... to really, the movies. The movies, yeah, of course. <laughs> Vin Diesel, big Troll 2 fan. He's, he's the one bankrolling Troll 3 that will star George Hardy and Vin Diesel. It's called Nilbog, <laughs> which is oh, called spelled backwards. Blows I'd watch the mind. shit out of that movie. Oh, fuck yeah, dude. Blows he's going to fire mind. Claudio the first day, though. <laughs> 100% over creative differences. Bring James Wan back in. <laughs> oh, James Wan's Troll 3 would be amazing. Uh, but, you know, Chris, while you got the floor a bit here, uh, your final thoughts on Best Worst Movie. Uh, yeah, I loved it from the first time I saw it many years ago. Um, and it's so interesting that uh, so many uh, films in this ilk that have like tried to ape its success have always like looked at like a bad movie and and like or uh, a well-received movie and said like, how did it really work? How, how did it function? Not many have attempted to like look and chronicle the like what was left in the wake, which is this uh, long gestating fandom. And I think it does it so well, even with uh, its uh, first crack at documentary filmmaking kind of aesthetic and style. So yeah, I, I think it's a delightful film with, that has a lot of layers you're not expecting for what is a documentary on a shitty VHS horror film. Yeah, and I would also definitely recommend in a similar vein Michael Stevenson's next film, The American Scream, which is about like ha handmade haunted houses. Great documentary. Yeah. Great oh, documentary. I've heard about that. I really want to see it. 
Very good documentary. But uh, yeah, I agree with everything that's been said here. I think Best Worst Movie, it's like, especially, it, I think it's a good example of like a documentary we would want to cover on the show because we do love the subject matter. We do like love that. And even despite the fact that it's not ex- especially well-made documentary that adds to kind of the charm and that kind of like personal intimate experience you have with this movie, especially for one that like, you know, with the movies about movies thing, a lot of the choices we could have done, even our bad choice uh, was a movie about like actually making movies. But I'm also just fascinated with the idea of like people who watch movies and the like sort of fandom that it comes around that. Cause obviously that's us, you know, to some degree, we all are in that kind of vein. Cause people just love watching movies for various reasons. And with the so bad, it's good ones. Like I said, that community that builds up around something so bad can sprout like friendships and families and, even like, you know, found families, as is the case with like the Troll 2 cast. I just, I, I love seeing that here. It reminds me of like the best sort of like movies about movies that I love, like an Ed Wood or the Muppet movies, stuff like that. Of like people who are very odd and shouldn't probably be making movies together at the same time, kind of finding that weird spirit of making one. And then in this case, discovering years later that even if they failed at the time, that failure can still resonate with people in a way they maybe didn't intend, but in a way that still is kind of weirdly beautiful, despite how also it can be kind of like awkward and sad a bit pathetic but also there's a beauty that's kind of underneath all of that unintentional comedy that's there but uh yeah it's time now for our weekly segment the double redo double redo double redo double redo double redo double redo Double, 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 redo. That works. So the Double Redo is a segment that Adam and I do every week, and a guest can join in, of course, if they so see fit, where uh, we talk about each a good and a bad movie related to the topic, uh, in this case, movies about movies. So Adam, myself, and Chris have each a good and a bad movie, uh, one to recommend and one to steer you away from. So Adam, you're going first here. What are your choices for this week's Double Redo? All right. So, my good choice is a movie that I love. We've talked about. It's just, it's great. Uh, it's probably the one of the only performances that I really like from the main actor. Uh, but the supporting cast is dynamite. It's hilarious. Uh, Get Shorty. Um, I absolutely love Get Shorty. Gene Hackman in it just fucking kills me every time. So does Des Farina, Danny DeVito. I mean, the cast is super stacked. And it's just, but this tough guy who falls in love with movies and movie making and wants to be involved and sort of get out of the life of being a wise guy and and really get involved in being a producer and just, he has that Hollywood dream and, but he's also still just a bad motherfucker who will beat the shit out of guys and protect other guys and carries a gun. Like, it's just a super solid, funny, funny movie. Uh, And for my bad, you know, I tried to rewatch this one actually last night. Uh, because someone I know rated it a three out of five. I wonder who would have done that. Like, yeah, so I'm like, I'm like, all right, I got to see. What the fuck am I missing? Like, maybe it's been so long since I've seen it. Maybe I, I missed something. And no, I think I, I, I didn't miss anything. I, Cecil B. Demented. Uh, I think it's a terrible fucking film. The only thing that works for that movie is the, holy shit, that's Michael Shannon. Holy shit, that's Maggie Gyllenhaal. Holy shit, that's Adrian Gnier. Bit of it all, because there's a lot of recognizable people in it. Other than that, I just think it's a fucking mess. I don't think it's funny. I don't think it's as satirical as it pretends to be. Uh, I just don't think any of it works. Uh, Steven Dorff is pretty good in it, but, you know, he, 
shocker, he's actually a pretty capable actor and always has been. I listened to Deuce's Wild episode for proof. Uh, it's just, it doesn't, it, it just doesn't work for me. I just think it's a fucking mess. And uh, it talk, I think it's pretentious. I think it's easily one of John Waters' worst films, um, which I'm not exactly a huge John Waters fan, but this is just an unbearable mess to me. Well, yeah, obviously we've seen Get Shorty, yeah, what we talked about on the show here previously. Um, I, I think it is a very good movie, I agree. Um, especially if nothing else, that sort of like movies about movies, culture element of it. Um, I, I love also, we didn't mention her much, but Renee Russo, the scene where she is looking around for John Travolta, finds him at the local movie theater watching Touch of Evil, and he's like so enraptured with it, and she's like, oh, he's kind of like a fucking dork about movies. It's kind of cute, and like that is what inspires their actual romance and makes it work a bit better throughout that whole movie. It's one of the better examples of like a guy who like wants to get into the movie business, like you mentioned, but also is this weird kind of like wise guy, tough guy dude. It's a very charming little movie that I, I agree is uh, it's one of Travolta's better movies for sure. Um, and then the Sissel be demented of it all. I hadn't seen it. This was your alternate choice for the bad for this particular episode. So I was like, you know what, I'll watch this, because I'm not huge on John Waters, I just haven't seen a lot of his movies. Like, I've seen Crybaby and Pink Flamingos, and he's always a dude who, like, I respect his movies more than I necessarily enjoy them. And watching Cecil Be Demented, I think that's the case. I think it has, like, it is, I agree, very shabby, very messy. But at the same time, it kind of has that weird renegade filmmaking spirit that I respect out of Waters, even though it's not at all subtle. Um, at the same time, I, I enjoy it for the weird little movie that it is, not necessarily in a way that I think it's like, oh, this masterpiece, like, if you go on Letterboxd, there's plenty of those reviews, just like, underrated masterpiece about the state of independent cinema. Not quite, but I think it's like a charming little, you know, weird, salacious, uh, dark comedy in its own right. Cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Chris, have you seen either of those? I've not seen um, yet Shorty, so I don't have much to say on it other than it's been recommended to me many, many times. And I've just been putting it off because that, at my car core, I don't like John Travolta in almost anything. So hey, be, that's me too, baby. So, yeah, it's going to be a hard sell no matter what. He's going to have to be really, really fucking charming. OK, but uh, Cecil be demented. I see what uh, you say about it. Uh, I'm a. I am a John Waters stan, as the kids say. Uh, the, the man is just such a fascinating guy. And with, with a premise like Cecil B. Demented, it should be so much more like venomous and angry. And it's just kind of not like his like for like a real kind of guerrilla filmmaking experience. Watch his like early black and white films. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. It should be angry. The, the, the problem with me with Cecil B. Demented, and we won't go too further into it. Instead of being angry, the whole thing is just horny. Yeah. I think they went too much into the horny sexual side of it and, and compared to the pure anger and rage side. I mean, I'd argue in that case, they kind of intersect in very bizarre ways with that particular movie. I think the horniness is part of like the rage that builds up, but we can talk about that some other time, Adam, maybe in the distant no, future. No, fucking no, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But anyway, um, I'll go ahead and go with my choices here uh, for the double redo. Um, and uh, for me, uh, I have uh, one that fits more, I guess, into the uh, appreciator of film, even though the main character becomes a filmmaker uh, by the end of it. Uh, I have Cinema Paradiso, which is an Italian film from the late 80s that, if you're unaware, is basically about this guy who is, like, he grows up to be a filmmaker, but he goes back to his 
home village in Sicily and uh, rediscovers this town. We see a lot of flashbacks about him, like, remembering when he used to go to, like, the local town cinema and was just, like, enraptured with the idea of, like, where he fell in love with movies and the old guy who used to run the movie theater that he eventually started working for and how, like, he sort of reached an adolescence uh, at the movie theater. And this is a movie I'd heard about for years but hadn't seen until around last year because I was just like, will it be so crestfallen for me if me... Thomas Mariani can't enjoy this great movie about cinema that literally takes place in Sicily, home country for my family. Like you're like, Italian. Oh boy, we we we'll go over this later. There's a lot to explain. I thought um, you were the but, Dutch, and I hate the Dutch. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like the I was worried. Like oh, I'm, if I don't fall in love with this, I feel like almost like I'm betraying my ancestors. But uh, yeah, I'm an easy mark because uh, I was crying olive oil by the end of this movie it's like such a beautiful movie about falling in love with movies and what that means and like the the theatrical experience and all this other stuff um and it has some bizarre moments like there's a bit where somebody goes blind after a projector like explodes and catches fire and she's like that showing that like oh movies can also be kind of dangerous at the same time but it it has like such a beautiful love of what like the idea of cinema is necessarily and how it can bring a town together and when that disappears a town can fall apart at the same time, I think it's a beautiful expression of all that. One of the best, maybe the best Neo Morricone score, and that's saying a lot. Uh, but yeah, tremendous movie that earns all the hype it gets. Uh, and then my bad pick is kind of like the most opposite of that kind of like joyful expression of like what cinema can be. I have The Bubble, the latest film from Judd Apatow that came out earlier this year. And if you don't know, it's this movie that came out on Netflix, has a star-studded cast with, like, Karen Gillan and Pedro Pascal and Leslie Mann, obviously, because it's a Judd Apatow movie. A bunch of very talented people who are basically playing uh, this uh, group of actors who are filming the latest entry in, like, a big, um, you know, blockbuster, like, it's a parody of Jurassic World, basically, uh, when COVID hits. So they have to start, like, going into pods and, like, you know, quarantining and making sure they don't get, you know, too close to each other. And in theory, you could make a fun satirical movie about, like, a bunch of actors sort of, like, being in the middle of the situation where they have to be cautious. But the problem is with this movie, it feels like it's almost like the satire is very anti-even the COVID protocols. And it's way more on just like, oh, this is as dumb as, like, these dumb actors are. And that results in dire, not-that-funny situations that I'm just, like especially with Shocker, a Judd Apatow movie, it's full of playing of, like, really long, endless diatribes that, like, are clearly improvised, but also, it's, like, two hours and ten minutes fucking long. It's so long and endlessly unfunny, and just wastes a lot of very talented people who are here in such, like, very vapid, dumb ways. It is just the nadir of that dude, and he's, like, already fallen off so much for me in the last couple of years, but this is, like, a rock-bottom example, especially for his directorial works. Well, I've never seen either of your choices, and just to spite you, I'm never gonna fucking watch them. <gasps> Mamma mia, no! <laughs> Beepity-boppity-boopity. Oh, the racism on this podcast, as a fellow Italian, is just disgusting. <laughs> Look, I can do it, he can't! <laughs> <laughs> I like the Olive Garden! <laughs> Oh, the breadsticks, they're endless. <laughs> Guys, the, yeah, and the salad, too. They got a sausage soup. <laughs> but have you seen either of those, Chris? I have seen Cinema Paradiso. It is a lovely, lovely film. Uh, completely echoing what you said. It's just it's like such a 
beautiful story of like the magic that's the, the magic that the movies can bring to people without any of the kind of uh hollywood self-suckery that that kind of message is involved with and uh i skipped the bubble uh for very very obvious reasons well uh you have your own choices chris so please uh, what are your good and bad choice for the double redo uh, so yeah, for uh, my good side, uh, I had to be a bit more selective because as I said, like films about filmmaking are like kind of my thing. I very much enjoy a lot of them. So uh, I decided to pick something that's kind of disturbingly original and produce some of my fellow Canadian countrymen. And I feel like it, it could use a lot more exposure and more people should see it. So I settled on The Dirties, directed by Matt Johnson. So the film takes the form of this like found footage film following two high school students who are like self-described cinephiles and and outcasts and are left humiliated after like their student film project, uh, which is also titled The Dirties. And it's this like shoddily produced bully revenge thriller filled with borrowed dialogue and recreated scenes from their favorite films, turns them into laughingstocks. So where uh, one character, Owen, uh, takes it in strides and breaks away from his uh, friend, Matt, Matt spirals into a world of his own making, resolving to remake The Dirties, but as a cinema verite school shooting comedy, starring himself and the bullies harassing him, featuring real weapons. The film is obviously, given that description, a bizarre watch, but it's incredibly insightful into like the, the cruelty of high school social life, um, how the marginalized uh, can like find refuge in cinephilia and turn their frustrations into creative endeavors while at the same time acknowledging like the uncomfortable ways the, the like the artifice of the film camera can shield people from the reality of their actions and put them into this this weird world of cinema not being reality and the playful ways that it can distort the audience perception of events through like the genre conventions of found footage filmmaking it's just it's just so brilliant on such an understated level and Plus, due to uh, Matt Johnson, who, who you may have like uh, watched in Nirvana, the band, the show, his forceful screen filling personality and like the heavily improvised nature of the film where like I don't think like there's much of any like script to it. It's mostly improvised and most of the actors at the high school don't know that a movie's going on. It stands as like the funniest film ever made about plotting a school shooting. So if that doesn't make me proud of my national cinema, I don't know what will. And for the other side of the coin, I picked Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Kevin Smith, like love him or hate him, I kind of indifferent to him. He has a distinctive cultivated style and sense of humor and all of the worst qualities of which are like showcased in this film. It's like this lazily slapped together Hollywood satire about the stoner duo attempting to stop the production of a movie based on the comic book they were created in, they created or something. Uh, like Smith throwing stones at like the Hollywood machine is is like fine, especially in his like independent years. Like that's all well and good. It can even be charming if like you like Smith's style. But that same attitude emanating from Strike Back just feels musty and lacking any true meaning. Like especially when we consider what direction like Smith's career would go. Like he was getting on a soapbox in two thousand one about Hollywood running out of original ideas and has since like run the Jay and Silent Bob franchise into the ground is making a, another Clerks movie and released one of his films as an NFT. Like, fuck off, man. Like, even with the shots at the industry being like soft and half form, the, the film's so aggressively dated and it's like 2001 big box comedy sensibilities. And 
like so much dated humor. Like e- even the people I know who like like the View Askewiverse, they are not attempting to defend the honor of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. And with good reason, I think it sucks. Yeah, I mean, I have not seen The Dirties, even though that also has a Kevin Smith connection because he distributed that movie. Yes, he did. One of the few good things he did. <laughs> right. Um, because I remember I heard, I was still a fan of his around that time that movie came out. I just, I've never seen it, but I'd heard about it. It sounds very interesting. I'd, I'd be curious to see it, if nothing else. But Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, like, I mean, I was a, a diehard Kevin Smith fan for a bit, and Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back was one of the first ones I watched. Um, and I remember loving it at the time when I saw it and then going back to it, it's definitely one of those ones that hasn't aged quite that well for like a lot of reasons. Uh, but I will say some of the Hollywood satire stuff is some of the funnier bits in the movie, if nothing else, particularly the stuff with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon doing Good Will Hunting too is still pretty funny to me, especially the line face, ah, lemon face, ooh, bits. Like, I think some of that stuff is, like, genuinely really funny, but not so much a lot of, like, the Kevin Smith kind of, like, the sort of what you mentioned, like, oh, he's, Hollywood's out of original ideas. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to do a jerk-off fest to my own previous four movies that this is, like, my universe that I've created. All the characters are going to come back, and we're going to do winks and nods for all the fans out there, while also trying to make it look like more of, like, a bigger budget studio comedy from around that time. It's It's a weird, kind of contradictory movie in a lot of ways i've also not seen your good choice i remember hearing about it but uh for some reason it's just always escaped me but it does sound fascinating i wouldn't mind checking it out and uh jane Silent bob strike back kind of the same boat thomas uh i remember thinking jane Silent bob strike back was funny when it first came out um but i was also you know like a late teenager <laughs> um yeah, I, I tried to rewatch it probably a couple years ago, and it's just, it's abysmal. It's so hard to get through. Um, there's the Goodwill Hunting 2 thing does make me laugh. Uh, the line face, sour face, all that stuff. But then even just, uh, so are we rolling then, Gus? And Jesus Christ, Ben, I said I'm busy. <laughs> Gus had said so they're just counting piles of money. Like, that's funny to me. But that's about it. The rest is just, let's get overly crass. And, you know, it's just, it's, nah. It's not very good. And then the less we say about anything post uh, Jay and Soundbox Strike Back and Kevin Smith's career, probably the better. Well, uh, let's go ahead and just repeat our titles for everybody out there as we like to do at the end of the Double Reduce segment. Uh, Adam? For my good, I had Get Shorty, and for the bad, I had Cecil B. Demented. For my good, I had Cinema Paradiso, and for my bad, I had The Bubble. And for my good, I had The Dirties, and for my bad, I had Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. And uh, we'll be closing out the show here, but stay tuned at the very end. We'll be picking our movies for next week's episode. But we want to thank some people. Like We want to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our great artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water, night with a K, underscore of, underscore water on like Twitter. You'll find a link tree for all his other great uh, pieces of artwork. And uh, thanks, of course, to our supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just the $1, you all get to do stuff like vote in polls for topics or movies we cover, like Bowfinger. You all got to talk about Bowfinger, so thank you all so much. And then uh, you also get to listen to bonus podcasts, and in terms of voting, this particular week, uh, you'll be able to uh, vote for um, a topic we're going to be doing next month, around the time that Blonde is coming out, the Marilyn Monroe movie starring Anna de Armas, which is coming out with an NC-17 rating, 
which inspired us to be like, you know what, uh, let's see, uh, let's talk about the ratings MPA board in our own way, uh, depending on how you patrons vote, you all get to pick between if we get to devote an episode to the NC-17, or we're also including X and unrated movies as part of that, we can either devote an episode to that, or by complete contrast on the other side of things, uh, rated G movies. Both of which aren't nearly as common as you'd think they are anymore in terms of movies that are released out there to the public. So either the most awful, dirty, crass ones or the ones for everybody. Yeah, general audiences. That's what the G stands for. Yes, so either one of those. Either way, it'll be very interesting (laughs) to discuss those weird barometers of that system. (laughs) I want to talk about some porn, yo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you heard it from Adam. We know where he's campaigning. <laughs> Debbie does that. Dallas, baby. <laughs> Finally, he's had it in his back pocket the whole time. Literally. <laughs> uh, but that's all up to you, patrons. You all get to vote on that. Uh, the the day after this episode comes out, you'll be able to vote on that. And if you just uh, you know contribute the one dollar a month, you get to join the people who get to vote for that and listen to bonus podcasts and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, but the last person we need to thank is our guest. Chris, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Go ahead and plug yourself. Where can people find you on the internet? Oh, thanks. Uh, it, it was a pleasure being here. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cinema Creep. Uh, I can't believe I was able to score that uh, handle. Uh, and you can find my writing both on Film Pulse and uh, Film Cred. And if you liked how I hijacked the ending of this podcast to talk about something Canadian, I have a whole podcast where I talk about Canadian scenes, uh, things with my co-host uh, called Cartoon Night in Canada. So check that out if you want. And uh, for more of us, find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. Uh, you can also uh, email us any kind of feedback uh, over at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And you can find me specifically on Twitter and Letterboxd at Not the Who's Tommy. I also do some writing at uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com. And just a couple quick plugs for me. Uh, one, I was the guest host on, I've talked about before, I'm a producer for the Film Cred Review podcast uh, over on the Film Cred Patreon. I ended up guest hosting because Hyle Peralta couldn't be the host for that particular one. And uh, I talked a bunch of stuff about like the HBO Max news and the 50th anniversary of Bonnie and Clyde with our guest Maeve Cadigan. It was a lot of fun on that particular episode. And uh, also, I am going to be, as I have been for the last several years, over at Dragon Con, where I do panels every year. Um, if you have the Dragon Con app, you'll be able to see the full list of like uh, how my panels have been scheduled. But uh, just to give you a few hints, I'll be doing panels about the show Severance on Apple TV. Um, I'll be doing a Godzilla panel, a Candyman panel, the Thing for the Anniversary panel, what we do in the Shadows panel, the David Lynch panel, and a Halloween 3 40th anniversary panel as well um, throughout that Labor Day weekend over in downtown Atlanta. So if you're at Dragon Con, uh, make sure to see me at a panel. Say hi if you're a fan of the show. Definitely. would love to see and hear from you. I'm not going to Dragon Con because uh, I don't like nerds. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, Yeah, I'm not going to Dragon Con because I don't have fucking money either. And plus nerds. Uh, no, I. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. You can find me on Facebook under my full name, Adam Thomas. Uh, it's set to private, but send me a message. Let me know who you are if you're a fan of the show, and I'll add you. We can shoot the shit about all the nerds at Dragon Con or whatever the fuck you want to do. Uh, or you can find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. 
Yes. And uh, for more of us uh, and our audio antics, uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you want to listen to all the other great shows on the network. And you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for like 200 episodes before we even join Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon, that's cool, money can be tight. The completely free way to help us out is to simply rate, review, or share the show around to give us more visibility. Yeah. You should do that. Or don't. I don't fucking care anymore. Life is meaningless. Well, with that ring endorsement, I can't wait to talk about next week's episode, everybody. Yay! We're doing another episode next week. And next week's topic is one... Well, that's true. But I know, Adam, you've been wanting to do this particular topic for quite Uh a while. Because uh, we're uh, heading toward the end of the Only Murders in the Building. Speaking of Steve Martin, uh, that show that's been uh, in its second season is still roaring. Um, The other main star of that show is Mr. Martin Short. And we figured as we're getting to the end of that season, uh, we've been wanting to do Martin Short as a topic. Mainly Adam is like so hell-bent, has been wanting to do this as a topic. So we finally figured, as good an excuse as any, to talk about Mr. Martin Short as a full topic. And uh, you have the two good... For that, I do. obviously, and I have the two bad, and we've assigned them between 1 and 10 for each of our choices, and uh, usually the opposite person would pick a number between 1 and 10 and be like, oh, hey, that's number 5, uh, I'm going to pick number 5, and it's like, okay, that's close to number 4, which has this particular movie on it, though when a guest like Chris comes on, they get to pick uh, the particular uh, number that gets us to closest to the good and the bad pick, but keep in mind we have the Godfather rule, which Adam and I uh, each have a single veto in our back pocket we have to use by next May. Uh, on a topic, uh, if we hear one of the choices, say, example, my bad pick, Adam's like, you know what, I don't want to cover that movie, I'll actually take the cannoli, unless that choice is gone, and we have to go with the other choice that person has for the next episode. But, for your two good choices, Chris, please pick number between 1 and 10. Oh, uh, pressure's on here. Um, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a f- 7. All right. At number eight, I have a movie uh, that not only has Martin Short in one of the starring roles, also has some of my favorite character actors in it. It's also directed by one of my all-time favorite directors who's directed several of my all-time favorite movies. I have Joe Dante's Inner Space. Oh, hell yeah. Not taking a cannoli on that. Love Inner Space. Great. 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 Yeah, but a great use of Martin Short. Can't wait to talk about that. But what was your other choice, Adam? I had a movie directed by a horrible piece of shit, but it's, it's a it's a fucking great movie. Also starring Steve Martin, I had Three Amigos. Oh yeah, for sure, great movie. A lot of fun with him. his first film as well. Yeah, yeah. But now for my two bad choices, Chris, number between one and ten. Ooh, uh, uh, let's go the other side of the spectrum. Give give me a, a, a all money on two. Okay, at number one. I have, like, Martin Short's done plenty of bad movies, but there's only one worth discussing in detail. (laughs) Even though I kind of enjoy this particular movie, and I would love to talk about it extensively. I have his 1994 vehicle, Clifford. You mean Nicolas Cage's favorite movie, Clifford? (laughs) He he really loves Clifford. He he loves Clifford. (laughs) I, I will not be taking the cannoli because if you're going to talk about a bad Martin Short movie, it has to be Clifford. It has to be, for sure, yes. But uh, over on the 
other side of things, over at number nine, I had, I, I would say one of his more forgettable ones, but one I remember weirdly as a child, I have uh, A Simple Wish, the, the Mara Wilson, Kathleen Turner. Oh, Jesus. Good God. <laughs> I mean, I know I've seen it, but yeah, I'd be hard-pressed to tell you anything about it. Yeah, not very good. But yeah, so Clifford and Inner Space, lots to talk about over there. But uh, yeah, that is the end of our episode. And until next time, everybody, we'll see you at the movies. <laughs> Suck a butt, nerds! <laughs>